You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that people usually think psychedelic drugs stimulate your brain, but new studies, particularly neuroimaging studies, are showing that psilocybin, or the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, actually calms certain parts of your brain so that they stop distracting you, which may lead to promoted awareness. In other words, it turns down a lot of the inputs that you're getting so that you become more aware of other things. And uh, I'm not advocating recreational use of this kind of stuff, uh, if, if you're wondering. I'm just talking about what we know, that these have a medical effect on controlling your brain and your consciousness. And that's something that, that's worth studying and understanding and using when appropriate. Our guest today is no stranger to this discussion. Uh, he needs very little introduction because he's dedicated a lot of his career to studying unconventional theories and altered states of consciousness. I'm talking about Graham Hancock. He's the author of a new book called Magicians of the Gods, and he's written major international bestsellers, The Sign and the Seal, Fingerprints of the Gods, and Heaven's Mirror. But he's perhaps most famous, at least online, for a video he did for TEDx Whitechapel that was about ayahuasca. This is a, a plant medicine that's been used for thousands and thousands of years that is a hallucinogen, one that I used in a shamanic ceremony in Peru in around 2000. And 
this is uh, this is something that several very influential people have, have just admitted to, including Steve Jobs, used hallucinogens to increase his his creativity, and not use them regularly, use them in a very specific, careful, conscious way. So, Graham, the fact that your TEDx video was taken down after 130,000 views, which led to it being viewed millions of times in bootleg copies online is hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Number one, they took it down. Number two, that, that it actually made it more popular. So welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's great to be here. Yeah, the internet hates censorship, you know, and the attempt by Ted to, to censor my talk backfired on them in a massive way. And there were editions upload pirate versions of it uploaded all over the, all over the internet, and it just went viral. So Ted shot themselves in the foot with that one. So, I mean, Ted has a lot of really interesting stuff out there. I've given, uh, I think, at least one and probably two TEDx talks. Mm. What what caused them to shut it down? Was this like the, the mothership Ted? Was this just the, the TEDx people? Like, what happened there? I think we saw the skull behind the smile. <laughs> I think that, that, that what it is, in fact, Ted, you know, the, the people at Ted uh, confessed to this, that they have a, a science board which tells them what is politically correct and what is not. Mm. Uh, and they regarded my talk and another talk given at the same event by my friend and colleague Rupert Sheldrake, they regarded our talks as uh, not politically correct because they, it turns out that this science board that advises TED are kind of science fundamentalists. They uh, believe that everything can be reduced to matter that there is no non-material element of reality. They regard consciousness <laughs> as an accidental byproduct of brain activity. You know, we got these big brains so that we yeah. could compete in the jungle and accidentally, as a side effect of that, we got consciousness. They call it actually an epiphenomenon of brain activity. And this is science dogma. This is not science fact. But Ted's science board uh, have embraced that dogma and my talk and Rupert Sheldrake's talk by proposing a possible non-local basis for consciousness uh, were deleted by Ted because we contradicted their dogma. It was as simple as that. And in fact, all the reasons they gave for deleting the talks turned out to be bogus. And in the end, they had to cross them all out on their website. We made them put it back on their <laughs> website because they had defamed us. They put it back on their website, they crossed out all their objections, and they published our refutations. But it's really out there on the net in the pirate editions that this, uh, that this talk is being seen these days. It, it's an interesting place that you must find yourself, because a lot of the stuff that you talk about, it is theories, and they're radically unconventional. You talk about alternative versions of history, and you present evidence for them. And I, I don't know that that you say that you know 100% on everything there, but you're like, look, there's something here that doesn't fit the accepted belief. Therefore, the accepted belief probably has holes in it. And I've, I've not read all of your things, but I've certainly come across your work and, and read a good amount of it. And, and you make reasonable arguments. Whether or not we can ever prove one or the other is, there's some things in history that will always be theories, because mm -hmm. unless we have time travel, we're not going to know for sure. But reasonableness, I, I don't find a lot of what you're suggesting unreasonable. Oh, and thank you. Yeah, I th scientists I, should look at that. I think, they should, I, I think, I think the, the point here is that history is a story. It's a narrative <laughs> which is mm -hmm. being told to us. And that sole possession of that narrative has been handed over to a professional class, the historians and the archaeologists. They effectively have a grip on the story of our past. And they 
deliver it to us through the schools and through the universities. Uh, and it's what we are taught is the fact about our past. But we should never forget that it isn't a fact. It's a story. And the further back you go into prehistory, the slimmer the actual evidence upon which the story is based uh, it, it can be found. There just, there just yeah. is less and less and less of it. And the more it becomes a work of interpretation and, and really guesswork or fairy tale telling uh, on the part of historians and archaeologists. So my, my view has been that my role when it comes to the prehistory, to the origins of civilization, to the, 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 the remote background of our species, my role is to provide a thoroughly argued, well-reasoned, well-worked-out alternative take, to give, to give people who are interested in these matters another perspective, another story about our past. And, and I would maintain that the, that the story that I am putting forward about our past is at least as well based in the known facts as the story that is told by historians and archaeologists. And there's a kind of ideological struggle between the two sides of history. This, this yeah. plugs into, um, I, I wouldn't want to sound conspiratorial, but into a kind of mind control system in our society. If you've got a a grip on history. If you're if you're controlling history and how history is told, then that gives you amazing power in the present as as well. And I think this needs to be challenged. And I've made it my business to challenge the narrative of history for the last twenty plus years. So why are you that way? <laughs> you're like the most contrarian guy ever. Like it's what happened to you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know why this happened because actually you're right. I mean, I have been doing this for a long time. It's not just yeah. about history. Like a big book that I wrote in the nineteen eighties was called, uh, it had nothing to do with history, it was called Lords of Poverty, the free willing lifestyles, power, prestige and corruption of the multi-billion dollar aid business. You know, back in the 80s, aid was seen, oh, as, yeah. aid was seen foreign aid was seen as something that you couldn't criticize. Uh, but I had been a field correspondent, I'd been the East Africa correspondent of The Economist, I'd been out there in the field, I'd actually seen what was happening. And again, the narrative we were being told by the PR people in the aid agencies was completely different to what I was seeing on the ground. So I, I decided to, to tell my truth and to give the opposite side of the story and to say actually aid disguises itself as something really good, but in fact it's something really bad. If you look at Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which came out more recently, where you talk about what happens with some of the, the activities in emerging economies when you do some of the aid programs and all, you're pointing out longer term systems thinking things that, that are not immediately obvious because as a species, humans are not particularly strong at, at, at systems thinking and at looking no. at unintended long-term consequences. Like we're short-term oriented because that's what really, we're wired to not be eaten by tigers and not starve mm. to death. And those are both short-term phenomena. Yeah. Longer-term stuff, eh, you probably had time to reproduce this before is, that happened. This is a state of mind that the human race yeah. needs to grow out of if we Amen. are to progress. So the other thing you're well known for is uh, your very open conversation about your use of ayahuasca, which is a compound that really contains DMT, which yeah. is also known as the spirit molecule, as well as a couple other things that mm -hmm. disable enzymes in the gut mm -hmm. that would make your body normally break the drug down. Correct. And the, the brain has DMT receptors that are activated usually when you're born and when you die and probably a few other times. And uh, having experienced this, it's actually, it's a very spiritual experience doing yeah. ayahuasca, at least in a shamanic ceremony it is. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen people change their religion and, and have very profound personal growth experiences from it. Absolutely. In fact, I don't, I don't know anyone who's done ayahuasca without having profound changes in their life, sometimes scary or unplanned ones, but always beneficial in the long run. Always beneficial in the long run. It is a, it is a life-changing 
ex experience. Um, and, and it's an experience that shakes up your view of reality, as oh, yeah. a matter of fact. What is this thing that we call reality? Again, if we go back to those hardline materialist scientists, people like, very clever guy like Richard Dawkins, for example, mm -hmm. I think that, um, that their whole perspective on the nature of reality would probably be shifted if they were to have, <laughs> if they were to have a dozen ayahuasca sessions. And I once put that to Dawkins at a public <laughs> meeting. I would love to do ayahuasca with, with, with Richard Dawkins. As a matter of fact, if it was, if it was Dawkins, because he's a very hard-headed guy, I would say <laughs> what he needs is an intravenous infusion of pure DMT, uh, because there's no negotiation with DMT. You know, you're right that DMT is the active ingredient of ayahuasca, but it's kind of gentler in ayahuasca. It, operates it, on, it unfolds over about four hours. There's a certain amount of negotiation. You can exert your will. You can resist. But when you hit the right dose with DMT, whether smoked or by intravenous infusion, it takes no prisoners. I mean, you are, you are going to go where it is going to take you, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I've, I've used pure DMT. Um, you can also, um, you can snort it, which yeah. gives you a little bit longer acting. It's yeah. somewhere between intravenous and smoking it. Yeah. And, and just for people listening, we, we have kids who listen to this. Mm. Like, this is not a party drug. This stuff will open your head up. Like, like, like do not mess around with this oh, stuff. Yes. If, if you ever decide to use it, you use it with people who know what they're doing, yeah. people who are trained. Like, you may need assistance when you're done. Like, like this is the exact opposite of a party drug or a recreational experience. Yes, you're completely like, right. Like, I don't often say this on the show, but don't fuck around with this stuff, yeah. <laughs> okay? I, I, I agree. Uh, this is a very serious matter. Yeah. Uh, working with these powerful psychedelics uh, is not something to be undertaken lightly. And actually, if we do undertake it lightly, if we are pursuing it purely for recreational purposes, the chances of, uh, of uh, us getting anything useful out of it are much less. It's, it's good to go into this with a serious intent and realize that you are doing something very serious and that you may be about to have one of the most challenging experiences that you will ever have in your life. It's important to know that. But the fact that the experience is challenging is not a reason to avoid it. Uh, the fact that the experience is challenging is a reason to take care and to treat yeah. it with respect and with seriousness and to do it in the right setting and the right frame of mind and with people who know what they're doing. And that's why the shamanic tradition in, for example, the Amazon is so helpful. They've been working with ayahuasca for more than 4,000 years in the Amazon. They talk about, you know, field testing of drugs, trial testing of drugs. This, this <laughs> substance has been tested in human populations for thousands and thousands of years, and they know what they're doing. And we in the West, if we want to work with ayahuasca, and increasingly more of us do, we have to have the humility to sit down at the feet of those shamans and learn what they know. And a adapt it and apply it to the Western context. So, so I was maybe more of the mindset where consciousness is a local phenomenon inside the head. Mm. Many years ago, I, I, my grandparents met working on the Manhattan Project, like very Western science kinds of people. Yeah. And I, I, I'd done ayahuasca, I meditated and learned all these various sorts of things. But I I still really kind of believed that, that consciousness was in the head and ayahuasca was part of what made me see the other side of it, which is I kind of think consciousness resides in my head, mm. but it's a field phenomena that probably doesn't only sit there. But the reason I want to go back to that thing you said there is that there's, there's a, a group of transhumanists and, and I'm, I'm often, uh, I have lots of transhumanist friends. These are people who sort of want to, want to transcend the human body. They, they want to move their consciousness out of the human body, but almost to a T, many of them believe that consciousness is a local phenomenon. Mm. 
which reduces the, the human body to a robot, basically, to like a meat yeah. machine. And what's your take on that? Like, walk me through your thinking about the meat machine argument versus consciousness is a virtual machine in a meat machine. Like, what's the difference? Well, the thing is, we're unlikely ever to know absolutely what the, <laughs> yeah. what, what the truth is. We have totally to go true. on best guess and on, yeah. uh, on instinctive and intuitive feeling to, 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 to how we go with it. But, but there's also some evidence. There's some data that we that we need to take into account. Actually, the meat robot thing is one of the problems that I have with transhumanism. I, I, I do too. I think yeah. it's a dehumanism in a sense, mm -hmm. uh, and that is and that is unfortunate. And also, I'm not sure that the our ultimate goal should be to extend individual lives indefinitely. Uh, only, know, only mine, not everyone else's. Right? <laughs> I mean, in ancient cultures, we already have a mechanism for doing that. It's called reincarnation. You know now. Everybody of a scientific frame of mind might throw their hands up in horror and say, that's just woo-woo. There's no such thing as reincarnation. But actually, we don't know that. That's a, that's a theory to say there's no such thing as reincarnation. It's not a fact. And yeah. Work's been done on this by Ian Stevens at the University of Virginia. He, he actually set out to disprove reincarnation. And after 15 years of solid scientific work with children, mainly in India, but in other cultures <laughs> as well, who remembered their past lives and could yeah. actually go and find objects in the house they'd lived in before, he ended up with an honest conclusion that the data supports reincarnation. Yeah. He actually ended up pr proving it. So I'm not saying it's proved, but I'm saying it's possible. Yeah. And if there's there's also a guy, sorry to interrupt you there, yeah. there's a guy whose name is Tom, and it kills me because I've been on the phone with him, and, and I'm not remembering his last name right now, who wrote a book about the evolutionary arguments behind reincarnation. Right. Literally saying, if you want the species to survive, you would engineer the species to be able to do this, because yeah. then knowledge is passed down. Mm -hmm. And I never thought of it that way, but but they're actually, it would be a useful thing if it was a part of our species, and it very well may be. Suppose right. that this is the the clever, the brilliant mechanism that is already built up into us. And then we try to just set that mechanism aside yeah. and, and use technology to extend our individual lives forever. We might actually be completely missing the point of what it is we're <laughs> here to do on the planet. You know, yeah. maybe we are here to learn lessons. A lot of ancient traditions say that. Yeah. A friend of mine calls this the university of duality, where we learn the lessons of good and evil, of right and wrong. Not that all is duality, but here on this plane, in this planet, in this material realm, that's the lesson that has to teach. And, and to extend one human life rather than reshuffling the pack every lifetime and finding yourself in a different set of circumstances might actually be depriving you of vital lessons. It could be a very serious mistake. So I think we have to think very carefully about all of this. We all have an instinct to cling on to our physical life. We want it to go on forever, of, of course, but maybe that's not the best thing. And maybe we should be making way for the next generations and maybe the next generations will actually be us. I, I, I tend to think that I don't necessarily want to live forever, mm. but I would like to choose when and how I die. <laughs> like I want control. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 not necessarily to never be able to die or to be immortal because yeah. uh, there might be a time when you're like I'm done and and I've seen this in working with with very old people I've run an anti-aging research group for a long time right. there's a certain point where you're like you know what I'm done yeah like and and that's okay like it, I, I, I think that's that fine. a bad thing I don't right? see it, I don't see it as a bad thing either yeah. uh, I don't see I don't see death as a as as a bad thing uh, you know we have life because there is death death is part of the deal 
this 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 life this experience that we undergo could not exist without death so we we should not shun it and fear it and hate it rather rather we should regard it i regard it at any rate and i can't prove this but i regard it as the next great adventure the beginning of the next great yeah. adventure about eight or nine years ago i i met with one of the the founding people in the transhumanism movement a guy i really respect um, and I'm not going to say his name here because uh, I, I don't want to like like piss him off in any rude way. Uh, but we were sitting down in uh, in Florida uh, near the Life Extension Foundation headquarters, uh-huh. uh, where he he was. I don't know if he was re- related to them or knew them all well or something. And I, I said, "Well, we're all going to die," and he got really offended. And I said, "Look." there will come a time when the end of the universe happens, okay? No matter what you do, no matter if you upload yourself to every computer and you you know, cybernetically replace everything, you're gonna die. And like, and I'm okay with that. But he wasn't okay with that. Right? No, no. There's, there's, at, at the root of it is a, is a kind of unthought through horror of death. And, I believe and, there is. And, yeah. and actually, the truth is we, we don't know. There's a lot of dogma on this. And, and, and most, you know, the mainstream science would say that Hancock is talking woo-woo when he says that there might be life after death. But if you really think about, about it logically, it's a 50-50 shot. We don't have the facts. We know that our physical yeah. bodies die. But whether some element of us continues, and certainly ayahuasca experiences suggest that there is a non-local element to consciousness, that consciousness may even be mediated by the brain rather than manufactured by the brain. Once you start thinking along those lines, then of course death is not the end. And any, any more than you know, uh, throwing a brick through your TV set uh, destroys the signal. The signal is still there. The picture may be gone, yeah. but the signal's still there. I, I remember when my, my grandfather passed away, he, he used to write under the general chemistry heading for Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, atheist his entire life. And, and he knew his end was coming and you know, pretty far along. And he pulled a, a prank on the family and he said, you know, the more I think about this whole religion thing as I'm getting older and death is approaching and, and everyone's going, oh my God, is he going to convert? He goes, the more I'm convinced it's all bullshit, <laughs> right? But then literally two or three days before he died and he decided to stop eating when he, he had autoimmune kidney issues and just didn't want to do dialysis anymore. So he, he chose, you know, he chose when and how he would go. But right, it's kind of in his last day or two of lucidity, he said, you know what? He said, I realize I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he said this, these really in short, he said, I've never done this before. Mm-hmm. He said, so I'm a scientist, so if I can send you a signal when I'm gone, I'll do my best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> course, what would a signal? We have no idea. We but have the fact idea. I've never done this before. We don't know, yeah. right? And the most hardcore atheist, rational scientist, we just don't know. And I'm curious. I'm not going to try it now, but I'm curious, right? Yeah, and 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 so and so we should be. We 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 don't have the facts. We should we should keep an open mind on this possibility. Well, well, thank you for for rattling your sabers and being a a, a rabble rouser about that because. It's important, and if we believe that we understand the nature of consciousness fully, mm. then I think that we're cutting ourselves off from huge avenues of scientific exploration. Actually, actually, it's one of the great mysteries of science. Yeah. It's, a, it's really a huge mystery, is how this few pounds of jelly inside our skulls transmutes into personal experiences, into feelings of love, for example, into uh, our appreciation of a beautiful symphony or, 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 a, or a sunset. 
really science cannot explain that. It cannot explain how that manifests in consciousness in a way that moves us emotionally. It's not, it's not clear at all. And any scientist who says they've got it all worked out are actually not telling the truth. But one thing I do agree with you on, uh, or rather with your, your uh, relative, is that um, the mainstream religions are basically bullshit. <laughs> that's that's a fact, and and uh, this is where a false dilemma is cre- created. It's like it's a choice between you know mm-hmm. religion uh, or or uh, materialism. No, the yeah. the religions are only offering us a particularly narrow band of interpretation. The truth is that we're immersed in mystery from the moment we're born. We're immersed in mystery. We don't know what this life is, and that and and that that mystery is the heart of the matter. And we should not prejudge anything about it. We should enter every mystery with an openness and a willingness to learn rather than with preconceived judgments about what's going on. Uh, in my own path, I, I hit 300 pounds. My brain wasn't working and, and I, I used a lot of the Western reductionist things that just didn't work mm-hmm. on my biology, on my brain, on, on my happiness levels. And I, I went and I did ayahuasca and, and went to Tibet and learned meditation with masters. And I did all that stuff because the other stuff didn't work. It doesn't work. It just, <laughs> it just plain doesn't work. And actually... You know, I don't want to name names, but if you pick Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, for example, these three religions all come down from a common source. They all they all share the same entity that they call God. And I'm sorry, but they've been responsible for a lot of horror in this world for thousands and thousands of years and still are. These religious conflicts, you know, the Muslims say, we have a monopoly on the truth. And the Christians say, we have a monopoly on the truth. And they're actually prepared to kill one another. Uh, over this argument about about what is true, these these are very divisive uh, and 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 very hate filled religions in many ways. They 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 talk the talk of peace and love, but if you actually get down to details and look how they behaved over history and how some of them are behaving even now, they walk the walk of hatred and fear and suspicion. I, I can tell you that having a a, a, a spiritually oriented tribal group, it seems to be good for people. And, and there's a natural argument for that, but all religions eventually have, have been used at one time or another for no good. And some things I don't understand, like like the Vatican Library hmm. contains documents I really would like to read. Yeah, and why they're, these are world treasures. Like, yeah. like there was a concert, concert effort to go around the planet, gather knowledge, yeah. burn everything they didn't take, yeah. and then put it, lock it in a vault. And to this day, it's not digitized and put online. Exactly. Like, what the hell? Hide like, it away. Hide it away. Because okay. it's part of their, it's part of the system by which they operate control. That's how, that's how it works. They, they, they control by denying access to knowledge. And, and in fact, it's not so long, you know, since the Christian church was burning people at the stake who disagreed with it. Um, the, the, the ideas that are contrary to the established dogma uh, get destroyed. We, well, we don't burn people at the stake anymore, but uh, it's, not that, it's not that long ago. So, so these systems, these big religions are actually huge bureaucracies. They're huge corporations. I would say if you scratch them deep enough, you'll find a shamanistic experience at the heart of all of those religions. Uh, You know, St. Paul on the Damascus Road, Moses in front of the burning bush or or whatever. But on top of that are just layer upon layer of power structures and bureaucracy and control and money and, and ideology. And they've turned into this horrible thing, which is really screwing up the world. So let, let's go back a little further. I don't know if we can go back before the creation of, of spirituality and, and hallucinogens because those appear to have happened a long, long time ago. Yeah. But let's talk about some of your very unorthodox views about human history because your, your book, Magicians of the Gods, is, uh, is all about that. 
And uh, I think people listening to Bulletproof Radio, I, I interview people who are, are performing really well, who are doing really unusual science and research around human performance. And, and you're actually looking more at uh, human history and some of the spiritual and consciousness kind of work. So you've got like two very distinct angles to your work and both yes. of which are, would be interesting to the audience. They, they intertwine because, because yeah. the use of visionary substances in ancient civilizations was extremely widespread. And these were, were nurtured and protected and regarded as vital experiences that, that everybody had to have. So they are, they are intertwined. But what I'm concerned about in Magicians of the Gods, which is actually a, the sequel to a book that I wrote 20 years ago, 20 years ago in 1995, I published a book called Fingerprints of the Gods. Oh, I, I read it back then, yeah. Which, which proposed that we are a species with amnesia, that we've lost an entire episode of advanced civilization and that this episode of advanced civilization occurred during the Ice Age and it was brought to an end by a global cataclysm. Now, that book... Uh, was in, in its own way a very prominent book. It, it went into 30 translations. It was read by, by millions of people, but it was universally derided and scorned by <laughs> archaeologists and by their friends in the media. The notion of a lost civilization, I was told, would just be impossible. There could be no such thing. Historians and archaeologists had got history nailed. And, there was, and they also said there was no cataclysm. Uh, at the end of the Ice Age. Well, this now turns out not to be true. And this is why yeah. I've written Magicians of the Gods, because we have 20 years of powerful new science and powerful new discoveries in the field of archaeology, which are massively supporting the case that I made in <laughs> Fingerprints of the Gods. I, I wouldn't say that you've been vindicated, because there's lots of stuff in there that you've said that hasn't been shown true. But many of the things that were outrageous when you wrote that book 20 years ago uh, there's some evidence supporting it that didn't exist back then. So yeah, directionally, I'd, I'd say you, you hit a few things and it should raise some eyebrows. If, if I go back and I think about what it said in there, when I read about these new finds, it's like, oh, look, they did find a pyramid on every continent. Oops. Yeah. Like, like we, <laughs> that's but, but kind of big news. There's more than that. I mean, at the heart of this, uh, if you go again to the narrative of mainstream history and archaeology, it, it's got a, a particular story that we're told about the origins of civilization. We're supposed to see ourselves as the end product of a long, steady social evolution, the the the, the Stone Age, the, the the primitive upper, the Paleolithic, and then we come gradually into the Neolithic, and then we start doing agriculture, and then the first cities appear. We see megalithic monuments appearing about five or six thousand years ago, and gradually, as time goes by, technology is developed, and lo and behold, here we are, you know, smart, technological us, the apex and the pinnacle. Of the, of, of the human story. The problem with this whole picture, I call it the house of history. A great deal of the house of history is very well built, certainly for the last eight or 9,000 years. They've, they've documented it well, but the problem is that they have not taken into account an extinction level event that happened on this planet between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. It's been known for a long time that something bad happened then. Geologists call it the Younger Dryas, that period of history. But for in the last few years, since 2007, published mainly in very high-level scientific journals and not yet really getting out to the public, is compelling scientific evidence that the Earth was hit by several fragments of a giant comet 12,800 years ago. And I emphasize this is not 
woo-woo. This is not pseudoscience. I am reporting the work of major mainstream scientists in journals like the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the Journal of Geology, and so on and so forth. It's just that sure. it hasn't filtered into the public domain. A giant cataclysm, at least four fragments of this comet, some of them up to a, a kilometer, uh, sorry, a mile in diameter, hit what was still the North American ice cap 12,800 years ago. Many people don't realize this, but North America, roughly north of Minnesota, M Minneapolis, was uh, covered with ice two miles deep. That was the ice age. Uh, and, and these impacts generated colossal heat and kinetic energy. Uh, a single one of them would be greater in its explosive power than the entire nuclear arsenal of the Earth going off at once. And the evidence for this is spread across 50 million square miles of the Earth's surface. It's very recent science. And this cataclysm happened right in the foundations of history. So however well built the house of history is since the cataclysm, because it does not take the cataclysm into account at all, it is not built into the model of the origins of civilization, I have to say that it looks like the house of history is built on foundations of sand. I don't blame the archaeologists. This information is so new, they've not had time to build it into their models, but they need to scramble to catch up with the science because this fundamentally affects our whole notion of the origins of civilization. And that's really why I've written Magicians of the Gods, together with evidence from many amazing archaeological sites that are in themselves rewriting history. How much of the realization of this very unusual kind of thinking came because you've used hallucinogens? Um, you know, I actually, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good question, but in fact, when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, which was between 1993 and 1995, I wasn't using hallucinogens at all. I was okay. using, I was using cannabis. I, I wrote the whole of Fingerprints of the Gods under the influence of cannabis. Okay. Um, but, but later and on... Unlike, unlike almost every other author who never has used pot, right? Of okay. course, never. <laughs> no, I, 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 think it, I think pot actually did play a part in, in loosening, okay. up my, loosening up my thinking, and it didn't demotivate me. Me. I was able to. Yeah. I was able to do those sixteen-hour days. I just did them stoned. The, the, um, the right strain will increase alpha brainwaves quite a bit, and that does help it creativity. It yeah, just that's science. Well, <laughs> that's I, not woo-woo. I, I have evidence of that in my in, in in my own life. But no, I hadn't taken psychedelics. In fact, prior when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods. I had only had one psychedelic journey in my whole life, and that had happened many years earlier in 1974 when I took LSD at a festival. It was an amazing experience, memorable, um, but at the time I didn't feel like continuing with that, and it wasn't until many years later, uh, in fact, uh, until 2003, when I was 53 years old, which was eight years after Fingerprints of the Gods was published, that I started to work with psychedelics in a, in a major way. And initially, I did that as a research project. I was writing a book uh, about the mysterious origins of consciousness. And uh, uh, it became necessary for me to have these experiences. I, I was intrigued by the phenomenon of cave art around the world and how this rock and cave art manifests very similar themes in whichever culture is creating it. And then I found that the explanation for this is that the artists were shamans and that they were depicting experiences, visionary experiences in altered states of consciousness. And as a boots on the ground journalist, I had to go have those experiences if I was going to write authentically about this. So I got on a plane, went down to the Amazon and spent five weeks. My first ayahuasca sessions were all in the Amazon, drinking ayahuasca with the shamans and seeing what they see and learning what they know, because they, just like the ancient cave artists, paint their visions. Uh, after they've had the visionary experience. So it was a project for me. But then it became much more than that. 
because ayahuasca, as you rightly say, changes lives. And it changed my life and it caused me to question myself and how I behaved in the world and my impact upon the world and upon individuals closely. And it, it, it really gave me a huge kick up the ass and taught me that I, <laughs> I, I need to, to change my behavior. I need to become a more nurturing, more positive, more loving person. And this was a very valuable experience to me. And I feel ayahuasca is a school. And that's why I've continued to work with ayahuasca in the 14 years since my first experiences way back in 2003, 13, 14 years ago. I tried to drink ayahuasca every year. It's a it's a great idea to set that in your in your your New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I mean, maybe a time will come, and I I have friends you know who've heard the voice of Mother Ayahuasca and said, okay, you've done it now. You've you've learned what you need to know. You we, you don't uh -huh. need to you don't need to drink me uh, anymore. And there is that famous saying, was it Timothy Timothy Leary? With psychedelics, when you've got the message, hang up the phone. <laughs> That's a great quote. But all right, so so you're a fan of conspiracy theories? No, uh, no, no. I'm, no, I'm not a fan of conspiracy theories at yeah, all. Okay, I'm not into conspiracy theories, and I don't write about conspiracy theories, which well, doesn't mean that I don't think that uh, okay. there is a control structure and a power structure in our so, society which so, has vested interests great. in keeping us asleep. That's that's a very that's actually a very accurate language, and and I appreciate you correcting that. The reason that I'm bringing that up is there is a group of people who would say that hallucinogens themselves are part of a mind control, MK Ultra, CIA kind of thing. Yeah, I've heard that bullshit. <laughs> they, um, they, say that, uh, they say that about the late, great Terence McKenna, you know. That uh, oh, yeah. He was supposed to be some kind of, some kind of agent. I mean, only, only I, people with an absolute tin ear and no sense of humor could listen to what Terence said and construe from that that he was some kind of government agent. Actually, what he claimed to be was an agent of the mushrooms. He claimed to be, <laughs> he claimed to be the emissary of the mushrooms here on Earth, of the intelligence of the, of, of the mushrooms, that he was their yeah. emissary and for a while their PR man. You know, that's what Terence was sure. saying. He wasn't saying he worked, but that has been twisted out of context because there's a lot of sick people want to believe just anything without thinking it through. I I can say that I'm a fan of, of direct experience and my experience with those things is that I don't really care whether someone tried to misuse them, which I guarantee you bad people have tried to misuse hallucinogens probably since they were first created. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Like they, they do what they do. And they do what they do. Yeah. They have their own agenda as a matter of fact. I mean the CIA or yeah. the FBI or whatever set of initials you like could get hold of this stuff and start giving it to people. But they're, what they're going to do is that those the, 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 the stuff itself is so subversive that it's going to completely <laughs> undermine their project in every, yeah. in every possible way. Uh, yeah. This is the intelligence of the planet that's speaking to us through psychedelics. So, so it, I suppose it's possible that, that if, if you were doing some other traumatic things to someone on hallucinogens, you could do something really bad. But uh, I, I don't want our, our whole conversation to go in that direction. But no, I, I, and that I, would be I, if yeah, somebody they, does something really bad under hallucinogens, that's latent within them, just as if they do something good. You know, the, the hallucinogens yeah. may, be a, may be a vehicle for manifesting, but it's in, it's in you. It's not in the sure. substance. I, I hear you there. All right, well, let's go back to your new book because 20 years after you wrote your first book, which has been shown to be at least directionally, it had a lot more accuracy than you got credit for back when you wrote it. I would say and, so. Yeah. 
Now, tell me about some of the theories in your new book. You have this thing called Hapgod's theory. I don't deal it? with Hapgood. I don't deal with Charles Hapgood at all in Magicians of the Gods. That's Fingerprints of the Gods. That's 20 years ago. That's uh, do one I have of, this backwards? Yeah, that's okay. one of the theories that I looked at when, I, when it was obvious to me that there had been a global cataclysm. And I considered okay. a number of possibilities, and one of them was the theory of Earth crust displacement put forward by Charles Hapgood. But back in 1995, we did not have the evidence we have now, which indeed is of a global cataclysm in exactly the window that I said in fingerprints there had been a global cataclysm, but now we have the science. We know that we were hit by fragments of a giant comet, that it, the impacts were primarily on the North American ice cap. However, it was a global cataclysm. It also affected Europe. It affected as far east as Syria. It coincided with the extinction of huge numbers of animal species, particularly the megafauna, the, the mammoths and the, and the woolly rhinos and, and, and so on. It was truly an extinction level event on a scale of the extinction level event that destroyed the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. These extinction level events are really, really important. They wipe the slate clean. Everything that was before gets thrown away and something new begins. So the dinosaurs after the asteroid hit the earth 65 million years ago, they kind of devolved into chickens, you know? And at the same time, there was a little mammal on the planet looked like a shrew going nowhere. But once the dinosaurs were cleared out of the way, that mammal began to evolve and eventually became us. So these are, these are world-changing events. And the discovery of just such a world-changing event just 12,800 years ago in the foundations of history has to change everything about history and has to, has to add credibility to the myths and traditions of a global cataclysm, of continent-wide wildfires, of floods, of a, of a great advanced civilization, a former golden age that was destroyed in this cataclysm. Archaeology has been able to dismiss all that now, but now that, up till now, but now that we have the evidence for a global cataclysm in exactly that window, archaeology cannot do so anymore. And this is very, very, very important information. The cataclysm okay. unfolded between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. There was a massive rise in sea level and a plunge of global temperatures 12,800 years ago. And then a second event switched all that round 11,600 years ago and global temperatures shot up. But again, it was accompanied by flooding. And, the in and both events were caused by comet impacts. Comets break up into multiple fragments. Some of them stay aloft and some of them hit the earth 12,800 and some more hit it 11,600 years ago. And these interfered with the global climate massively. And now it's interesting that 11,600 years ago is exactly the date for the foundation of an extraordinary megalithic site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli, have you got a picture of Stonehenge in your mind? Of course, yeah. Imagine that multiplied by 50. That's wow. Gobekli Tepe. Except Gobekli Tepe is 6,000 years older than Stonehenge. Wow. And there is no precedent for it whatsoever. It comes out of nowhere with no background. And the fairy tale archaeologists are telling about Gobekli Tepe at the moment because it's really thrown them a curveball. The fairy tale <laughs> they're telling about it at the moment is, goes roughly like this. That one morning, a group of hunter-gatherers in Turkey, a group of nomadic hunter-gatherers in Turkey, woke up with a kind of divine inspiration that, and, and equipped with all the skills and knowledge to organize a large work, labor force in a place with no water and to create a megalithic site 
50 times larger than Stonehenge with perfect astronomical alignments. These hunter-gatherers are supposed to have just suddenly known how to do that with no background whatsoever. And at the same moment, 11,600 years ago in the same area, we get a rapid spread of agricultural knowledge. Suddenly agriculture appears. Previously, they were hunter-gatherers. This does not look to me like a, a sudden inspired invention by a group of hunter-gatherers. This looks to me like a classic transfer of technology, that the survivors of a lost civilization who already knew how to do this stuff settled in Turkey and transferred their skills, transferred their knowledge to the local population and set in motion the process that eventually leads to us here today. Wow. So you think that the, the survivors of the cataclysm how how would they have survived this? I mean, we're talking like spaceship level. No, I don't. Alien, I, I like, don't. <laughs> I don't think we're talking spaceship level. And and uh, I have I have nothing against uh, aliens, by the way. Uh, me uh, either. I, I, I just met, don't know. Right? I've met many of them under the influence of ayahuasca. <laughs> Fair uh, point. I've, I've you know we the, the modern UFO phenomenon, by the way. I mean, we don't really know what it is. We the, the, certainly there's a phenomenon. Many people assume that it's high tech alien visitors coming here in spaceships but i don't know they could be visitors from other dimensions we don't know what they are there's a phenomenon but exactly what's going on is not clear i haven't ever seen anything in any of the archaeological sites it's been my privilege to explore over the last quarter of a century that i could only explain with some kind of alien intervention i mean if you've got the technology to cross interstellar space you are going to get your great pyramid aligned perfectly to true north, not three sixtieths of a single degree off true north. So I would say that that what we're looking at in these sites is human workmanship, but on a scale and at a level far beyond that that is accounted for by by mainstream uh, his, history. I don't think they were uh, flying to the moon. I don't think they had uh, spacecrafts, but I think we are looking at an advanced civilization which had certainly achieved a level of technology more than 12,000 years ago that would be equivalent to the technology of our civilization, perhaps in the early 19th century. They mapped okay. the world, for example. They explored the world. I think they had ships. And the, the traditions that are left suggest that that when the ho often it's referred to as the homeland of the gods and often it's described as an island, that when it was destroyed, when it was submerged beneath the waves, some of its people were at sea. They were still, they, and that's why they survived. And, and when they returned to the locus of their homeland, they found it gone, just mud in the water. Uh, and their project then became to resurrect or reincarnate or remake the lost world of the gods. And they settled in places like Egypt and Turkey and as far afield as, as Peru and, and Bolivia. And they started civilization again. So what we're seeing, what we think of as the origins of civilization is actually the reinitiation, the restarting of a former civilization. Okay. This is not an implausible argument. I mean, there's probably a bunch of naysayers who say, oh, it's entirely impossible, could never be. But I don't, I, I don't find anything that's offensive or shocking about this. I, I hope not. And I've tried yeah. to, you know, what I've, what I've done in, in the book, my job as a writer is to, is to write a book, obviously, that doesn't bore people and send them to sleep. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, it's, important, it's important to write a, a readable book. But within that frame, I have made the most determined effort to present to the reader the absolute latest science and the latest discoveries in this field. And I believe that that science and those discoveries revolutionize our view of history. It's not me that's revolutionizing our view of history. I'm simply reporting what's already going on. 
but which is not really getting out into the public domain in a big way and which has not yet been taken into account by archaeology. I think that's going to change. You talk a lot about maps in your books, especially some ancient ones like ways we find longitude and we have like a 1538. This is the year 1538 when there was suddenly a Mercator projection map. What's your theory about how we had all these very accurate maps? These all came as hand-me-downs from an older civilization that was seafaring? Yeah, you've got it. Uh, okay. roughly, roughly that. And, and, and why? Because on some of the maps, the map maker in their own handwriting have stated that the map was based on much older source maps, which had fallen apart. In the case of the famous Piri Reis map, for example, Piri Reis was a Turkish admiral, drew his map in around 1513. And he tells us kindly in his own handwriting on the map that he used a hundred source maps that were so ancient that they were falling apart. And he theorized that those maps had come from the lost library of Alexandria uh, in Egypt, that they had been extracted from the library of Alexandria before it was burnt down. Um, and, and so he, what he's presenting us with, it, with in his map is a compilation of older source maps that have come down goodness knows from where. Then when we start to look at the details of his map and many maps drawn in that period from these older source maps, we find that they're showing the world as it looked during the Ice Age not as it looks today. Uh, they're showing the world with sea levels much lower than they are today. So land masses are joined together, which are now islands. For example, Indonesia, uh, the Malaysian Peninsula, and the Indonesian islands as we know them today look completely different before 12,000 years ago. This was a huge continent-sized massive land, land mass, and that is reflected on many ancient maps. Antarctica, appears on many of these ancient maps. Yet yeah. our civilization did not discover Antarctica until the year 1818. So to find it on maps drawn in 1500 based on much older source maps is truly puzzling. It, 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 it has to open the mind and make us wonder what's going on here because there is evidence that somebody was mapping the world with a very high degree of accuracy. You see, we can do latitudes, anybody can do latitudes, but doing accurate longitudes is really quite a technological feat. And it wasn't until the early 1800s, the late 1700s, that our civilization was able to do that. You need to have an accurate timepiece, a chronometer that will tell you the time at the port you left from, and you can compare it with the local noon. And then you can do longitude. It's a technological achievement. So to find longitude, accurate longitudes, as good as any modern map on these ancient maps, has to alert us to the possibility that we've lost a civilization. Uh, it, it doesn't seem irrational to me. And, and there's an underlying thought process here that says, look, we have a theory. And when you find something that breaks the theory, then one of two things are true. One is the something doesn't exist or it's not what you think it is, or the theory is wrong. Yeah. But the, the traditional human drive is to say, that thing is wrong. Even if there's, you can't say it's wrong that there's a map that should not exist. Yeah. If the map exists, the story is false, yeah. or at least the story is partially false. Yeah, we need to look at it again at yeah. least. This and, this is the problem. Is one of the problems I I have with with archaeology. But you know, in ideal scientific work, when we find new facts that are not explained by the existing theory. We should be adjusting the existing theory. We should not be yeah. throwing away the new facts. Uh, and unfortunately, the existing theory in archaeology is so dominant and so existentially tied up with the, 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 the feeling of the individuals who hold it. In other words, an attack on that theory becomes an attack on their persons uh, yeah. that, that, that it's very difficult to let go of the theory. 
and, and this has been true of scientific revolutions down the ages. They don't happen easily. The, the modern uh, flat earth theory in nutrition that, that affected me greatly was the, the calories in, calories out. It says, you know, if, if you want to lose weight, eat less calories and exercise more and, and you'll just automatically lose weight. And, and I weighed 300 pounds and, and I really forced it and I could not lose weight. Mm-hmm. And I came across a study on feed efficiency in cattle. Mm-hmm. And they found out that if they give the cattle antibiotics, they can get fat on 30% less calories. Okay. Well, the existence of that phenomenon invalidates calories in, calories out as a functional model for gaining and losing weight. Absolutely. It, it, might, it might directionally be an interesting model soon, but it's wrong yeah. because it's, that should be enough for all of us to just be like, okay, let's look further. But instead, there are still a a group of mostly either fat or very angry, adrenally exhausted people sitting out there going, no, if I just exercise a little bit more, I'll stay thin. And I don't know how many generations it's going to take to stamp out just bad science. And and what you're putting out is is things like that. The staying power of bad ideas is really quite astonishing. Um, And and this is to do with psychological factors. As, as, As human beings, we get invested in particular areas of thought. I mean, this is why people kill one another in the name of religion. Who knows whether anything that there's, look, if the, if the Muslims are right, 100% right, then the Christians are 100% wrong. And if the Christians are 100% right, then the Muslims are 100% wrong. And each of them at certain periods of history has been willing to kill members of the other religion simply because they hold a different view. This is incredibly stupid behavior. We human beings have a tendency to not think to not use our brains, just to accept what we've been told and go with that throughout our lives. And if there's one change that I really welcome in the modern world, it is an awakening of the younger generation. People are becoming more and more critical of established authority and are not actually willing to be told what to think anymore. It's a small light at the moment, but it's growing. It's growing. Authority used to be all you needed. When I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, all it took was Professor X or Dr. Y to say this is wrong, and most people believe that. These days, people know that Professor X and Dr. Y are liars, that they've been lying to us all (laughs) along, whether it's government figures, whether it's scientists working in big corporations, you know, they have on the record lied, and we know that. So we distrust authority, and this allows, I think, an opening of minds and and an embracing of new concepts. It, It will speed up a scientific process. Um, there, there's some other things that happen around consciousness. Like for me to become aware of some of the things in, in open thinking and open-minded thinking, I, I do think that my ayahuasca experiences and, and some of the, the neurofeedback that I've done where you kind of have a lie detector pointing at you until you sort of start realizing that the world is way more complex than you thought because every time you think something that isn't accurate, the computer helps you see it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I guess I was deceiving myself there too. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of traumatic work to realize that you've kind of been lying to yourself a lot. Yeah. Um, but that kind of personal growth work has, has, I think, made me more of a citizen scientist to be able to look at that and say, look, if this thing exists, then that that theory might be useful, but it's not accurate. Yeah. Right? And and that whole that whole experience seems to point to uh, we'll call it an evolution of consciousness, mm-hmm. and we may just as a species be learning how to see things better. There's a book called. I want to call it the secret history of the universe or secret mm-hmm. history of consciousness mm-hmm. that was the first book that I came across that talked about our ability to see the color blue. Are, right. are you familiar with this? Yeah, I heard about it, but tell me more. I, 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 it's not right at the forefront it, of my mind. It, it seems to fit in, in with the kind of thinking that you're doing. And the idea here is that going back even like four, 500 years, we may not have been able to see the color blue 
And because it's very difficult for us to see even now, it creates stress in the eyes. It's a very, uh, right. very fast wavelength. And when you look at ancient writings, they never talked about blue. Right. They talked about the wine dark sea. Indeed, they did. Yeah. And, yeah. and who's ever seen a wine colored sea? Exactly. Like only where they're like killing dolphins does the see that right. color, and right. that's right. bad news all around. We have to learn to see things. There yeah. has to be a precedent. Somebody has to see it first. Maybe a hundred people have to see it first. Then the hundred monkey effect kicks in and somehow magically disseminates ac across the whole human race. We have to learn to see things. And this is what's happening, I believe, with the mystery around the origins of our civilization. Mm -hmm. That that very strong historical narrative that we've been brought up with, that's taught in the schools and the universities, that's reflected by the media, um, is being challenged by new evidence, which enough people are seeing to begin to shake the foundations of the whole edifice. And as more of us see it, more and more people see it themselves. And, and, it's, yeah. and, and it's a matter of just drawing attention to it. It's a matter of showing it was there. I think, for example, the reason we can be so sure about the dating of this amazing site in Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, is because whoever made it, after they'd made it and after it functioned for about a thousand years, they deliberately buried it. The deliberate burial of it is an extraordinary feature of the site. It would itself have been a huge job of work. Teams of hundreds of people with buckets, literally filled with soil and rubble and stones, poured them in over the megaliths and filled the megaliths up and covered them with a hill. Actually, the name Gobekli Tepe in the Turkish language means pot-bellied hill. And that pot-bellied hill over this megalithic site was put there entirely by human beings as though they were burying oh. a time capsule to pass down a message to the future. And that site was not rediscovered until the second half of the 1990s. And that's why we can be sure about the dating. Because you can't date stone. There isn't a good technique for directly dating the cutting of stone. You need to use carbon dating to date organic material, bone or charcoal, that's associated with the stone in such a way you can be sure it's of the same age. And in a sealed site like Gobekli Tepe, you can be sure of that. Now, I think that this recognition is going to require us to look again at many, many other megalithic sites around the world where it's possible that we've been given falsely young dates because later cultures have interfered with them and introduced younger organic material. And that younger organic material has been taken as the date of the site when in fact the site is much, much earlier. So you must have some incredibly interesting theories on the Great Pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm sure people listening would love to hear. Well, here's what, the, here's the what, math. If you take yeah. the height of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, which is not a random number, I'll explain why if you wish. If you take the height and multiply it by 43,200, you get the polar radius of the Earth. And if you measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. So the Great Pyramid, whether by accident or by design, encodes <laughs> the dimensions of our planet. Through those long dark ages, in the Middle Ages and so on, when we didn't even know we lived on a planet, uh, let alone its dimensions. Those dimensions were always there, encoded on a scale of 1 to 43,200 in the Great Pyramid. And the reason that number is not random is because it relates to a very hard-to-observe astronomical phenomenon, which is called the precession of the equinoxes, which unfolds at the rate of one degree every 72 years and changes the rising points of stars very, very slowly 
along the horizon. It's also why we do actually live in the dawning of the age of Aquarius. When we talk about ages of the world, we've been living in the so-called age of Pisces. That just means that the sun has been seen to rise against the background of the constellation of Pisces for the last 2,000 years. It's not an accident that the early Christians used the fish as their symbol. But because of the procession, it's shifting out of Pisces and into Aquarius. And it just happens that operates at the rate of one degree every 72 years, and 43,200 is a multiple of 72. It's 72 times 600. These numbers are found in myths and traditions all around the world. There's excellent work being done on this by the professor of the history of science at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Giorgio de Santigliana, in a, back in the 60s in a book called Hamlet's Mill. So what we have in the Great Pyramid is not only the dimensions of our planet, but they're also encoded on a scale derived from one of the key motions of the planet itself, the wobble on the planet's axis that causes the precession. And that is very clever. That is very clever work, preserving key data and using a scale that is derived from the planet itself. So you think that the pyramids were there kind of as, as almost indestructible uh, records of very, very important numbers. Yes, I think um, they're there. I okay. think they're there as indestructible records of a lost past. Uh, and we really need to get to grips with the whole of the Giza Plateau. There are so many areas of the Giza Plateau that are off limits now. There is already so much evidence of deeply, deeply embedded chambers within the Giza Plateau, uh, a whole passageway system running underneath it det detected by, by sonar and ground penetrating radar. But for some reason, the work is not being done at the moment to, to, to follow this up. What do you think would be in there? Do you have some sort of historical thing well, you looked well, at? That... Well, yes, there, there are specific ancient traditions relating to Giza, which tell us that it was created as a repository from knowledge from before the flood. And when they refer to the flood, I can't help thinking of Meltwater Pulse 1B yeah. that happened 11,600 years ago with the massive meltdown of the ice caps and the comet's impacts and the, the, the rising of sea level. Okay. Uh, you talk about some other things that are, are pretty interesting. You talk about mushroom stones in Mesoamerica. What, what's, can you well, tell me a little bit about now, that? Now we're on to my other subject, which is, which is <laughs> psychedelics and civilization. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, yeah, it's very clear uh, that if you go to the, the Maya areas in the, in, in the Yucatan, uh, there was a cult of the psilocybin mushroom. The, psil yeah. the psilocybin mushroom was ab absolutely central to spirituality uh, in that region. And there, there are stone effigies of, of psilocybin mushrooms. Actually, you find this the case all around the world. Go to Greece. Go to the site of Eleusis, which stands yeah. just out, outside Athens. It's a ruin now. But it was the beating heart of the ancient world. The Eleusinian mysteries drew towards them some of the greatest names of antiquity. People mm -hmm. like Plato and, and Cicero and Socrates w went there and had their lives transformed by the experience that unfolded for them in the Telestrion, this underground um, system of chambers where initiates were taken. And before they were taken in there, they were given a drink. And that beverage, we now know, uh, yeah. contained a substance very closely related to LSD, derived from ergot growing on barley. Uh, and, and, and 
it, it's very clear. The research on this has been has been mm-hmm. very thoroughly done. What was happening at Eleusis was a, a psychedelic experience yeah. in a setting that was beautifully engineered to maximize the power of that experience. And some of the great minds of antiquity came out of there with their lives transformed uh, and saying they had lost their fear of death. And that's interesting because to this day, new research, medical science today is beginning to embrace a little bit of psychedelic work again after standing away from it for so long. And and one of the great things that's been discovered about psilocybin is that psilocybin given to people who are in a, a, a state of terminal cancer will ease enormously ease the fear of death uh, and, 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 and allow peace of mind uh, the, and a sense that this is not the end, that the, that the adventure and the mystery continues. This is just a stage on our journey. We don't need to get too hung up on it. We don't need to fear death. There is something beyond. That's, that's the kind of message that these, that these teachers uh, give us. Now, is the message true? I can't tell you. Uh, but is the experience worth having? Definitely. Absolutely. Yes. I still find it bizarre that that those substances are so heavily regulated uh, from a from an addictive perspective. That's absurd. None <laughs> it's of these a little rough. There's no way these, it could be. Well, none of these substances are addictive. And anyway, yeah. this, this raises another issue: is does the state, does the government, really have a right yeah. to tell us what we may or may not do with our own bodies? Does it really have a right to tell adults that they have no right to explore the mystery of their own consciousness, the most intimate, the most sapient, the most personal part of themselves, that the government actually has the key? We think we live in a free society. How utterly absurd. Adult sovereignty over consciousness or otherwise put cognitive liberty so long as we do no harm to others must be a fundamental human right. And it's a fundamental abuse of human rights that our governments are pursuing the war on drugs, which they disguise under all sorts of false claims about health. Listen, if they were really concerned about health, they'd be banning alcohol, first and foremost, responsible for so many deaths, whether in traffic accidents or because of cirrhosis of the liver. We have to move on from this. We don't need the governments to tell us what to do. We already have laws that govern our behavior towards others. If we get in the face of others and cause them harm or damage or distress, we have laws that govern that. And I have no problem with those laws. But laws that seek to govern our internal mental processes while we're doing no harm to others, would seek to control our consciousness. That's why, to my mind, that's what my TED talk was called, that the war on drugs is really a war on consciousness and a war on people. My body, my biochemistry, I like to say. Yeah. Uh, no one should have the right to tell me what I'm allowed to put in my body or not allowed to put in my body, um, including Absolutely. including poison, if that's what I want to do, or if including your things that make me smarter. It's my, it's my body. Like, stay out of that. Exactly. So I'm, Government I'm has no right there. Government should not yeah. trespass on that space. And the fact that government does trespass on that space is part of a broader problem with our society that we need to break through. Fundamentally, there is a basic human right of sovereignty over consciousness. And and we have been deluded into allowing governments to seize that from us, to take it hostage and to control it, and actually to send us to prison and ruin our lives if we choose to explore our consciousness while doing no harm to others with the psychedelics, for example. That's why going to Peru and doing it in the Amazon is a good choice for many reasons. I agree. Where it's not illegal. It's not illegal, and you have the experienced practitioners who know what they're doing. It's still worth asking around. Not all is sweetness and light in the garden. There are problems. Do your research thoroughly. That's my advice to anybody going here. This is a very serious matter. But don't be... Don't allow yourself to be haunted by by fear. 
uh, fear is one of the worst emotions that human beings can suffer from and we have to overcome fear and the opposite of fear as bill hicks said long ago is love uh, love that i want to pick your brain on a few more things do you have a few more minutes i do indeed excellent all right let's talk about raising smart kids mm-hmm. what do you think about that I think that's a great thing for a parent to do. <laughs> I think Any advice? We have a we have a, a, a responsibility towards yeah. the younger generation. I've just become a grandfather for the first time in my life. My wife Santa and I have have six children between us. We've both been both been married before. Uh, we've got our we've got our first grandchild, and and our policy with with our our children um, has to been to bring them up with no dogma. That's the first and foremost thing. Bring them up with no dogma. Uh, but rather to to nurture and encourage their 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 own creative faculties and and to allow that to to manifest. We've done our best to do that. Nobody can be the best parent in the world all the time, but we've 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 done our best to to create a dogma free household in which our children could could grow up and now go out into the world and become open minded and and uh, inquiring people. Yeah, it's our responsibility as parents to provide the best. Uh, the best possible setting for our children and to launch them into life uh, in in the best possible way. And that's an area over which we have some control. You know, we feel powerless in the face of a massive uh, society. But actually in our in our individual lives, in our domestic lives, we can make choices, we can do things. And one of those choices is to create a great environment for our kids. All right. Uh, you've written some some interesting things there around focusing on, on the process of, of raising kids, and I'm just kind of picking your brain on some of the more interesting sure things. That that I have. Have. I'm not sure that I have ever written anything about the process yes. of raising kids in any book. It's not my subject. I, I, I write about psychedelics, and it, I write about lost civilizations, and I write some novels too. It might have been an interview or something. It just about process. I, I, yeah. These things stick possibly. in my mind sometimes. Poss- possibly, but, but uh, as a parent and, and as a grandparent, I can't think of any more honorable or important thing that an individual can do, but to equip the next generation with the intellectual, the, the spiritual, the, the mental tools necessary to live a fulfilled life. All right. I, uh, I love that. Uh, we'll go back to some of the more uh, historical society, human stuff, uh, because uh, I, I just love being able to pick your brain on different topics. Mm. There's a, a, I'm forgetting the name of the researcher who did this now, that there's a, a guy who, who's looked at human DNA and says, look, there's clear evidence that it was spliced and diced, and I, I don't have an opinion on that whatsoever. But he's pointing to historical societies. Are you familiar with that kind of work? Have you looked yes, at Yes, I am. And DNA actually is one of the great mysteries. It's a really interesting thing. So here's the story that our planet formed about four 0.5 billion years ago, 4,500 million years ago. It was very hot when it first formed. And it took 500 million years or so for it to cool down. And by about 3.9 billion years ago, it was cool enough to support life. And here's the mystery. Just 100 million years later, by 3.8 billion years ago, the planet was covered with life. Almost as soon as it was ready to support life, it became covered with life. And that life was based on the DNA, RNA system that is still in our bodies today. Now, Sir Francis Crick was the one of the two discoverers of the double helix structure of DNA. As a matter of fact, a not widely known 
uh, issue about <laughs> Francis Crick was that he was a regular user of LSD. Yeah, it, he, in fact, he envisioned the serpent twisting it on itself on a trip. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But his great discovery, I'm not saying there wasn't other work done because there was a great deal of work done, but when he really got it, when it came to him, that was in a visionary state under the influence of LSD. And that's interesting in itself. So this puts into context something else that Crick did, which is not very well known. Um, if you fast forward to 1981, he... he published a book called Life Itself. And that book is, is absolutely intriguing uh, because in that book, he uh, makes the point that the DNA system, which he was so crucial in discovering, um, it, it looks like an artifact. Uh, he, he, he said that quite specifically, uh, that, that he and another researcher, actually, Sir Fred Hoyle, a great astrophysicist, put forward this, this notion. They, they summarized it in a, in a phrase. The, the idea you see is that the DNA molecule, the DNA-RNA system, was supposed to have come together by random bumping together of molecules in the so-called primeval soup, and, and life just emerged from that. Well, for, for, for Sir Fred Hoyle and Francis Crick, you would be more likely to assemble a fully functioning and flying jumbo jet by passing a hurricane through a junkyard than you would be to assemble the DNA molecule in any kind of, randomly, in any kind of primeval soup. So Crick was a supporter of what's called directed panspermia. Uh, he believed that the DNA molecule had been sent here in genetically engineered bacteria uh, by some civilization on the other side of the galaxy that had perhaps faced uh, the sterilization of its own planet and that had sought to pass to pass the seeds of life on elsewhere and to begin the process of evolution again. And then this raises a question, could there be a message written in our DNA? There are highly conserved sections of DNA which are billions of years old. We share a lot of DNA in common with fruit flies, for example. These highly conserved sections would be ideal repositories for information. As a matter of fact, DNA is being used today as an infor information storage yeah. vehicle, and its capacities for in information storage are almost limitless. It may be that written within our DNA is a message for us when we reach a level of technology able to access it, or maybe that's what we access in deeply altered states of consciousness. Maybe that's why the visionary plants are universally regarded as teachers, because they are teaching us something from that hidden archive within us. Such ideas, in my view, are worth exploring. And I wrote a book back in 2005 called Supernatural, Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind, which actually goes into that particular mystery in some depth. It, it's, uh, it, it's one of those, those things where we'll, we'll probably never know with absolute certainty whether what we're seeing individually in visionary states is is that or as a representation of that but there's there's something valuable in there for sure yeah well it could uh, the way i look at it there, there's a number of possibilities one is that it is just our brain on drugs and there's nothing yeah. more to it than that we can't rule that out sure. um uh, and but 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 another is um that we may be altering the receiver wavelength of the brain that the brain is yeah. not generating consciousness it's receiving or transceiving it and thus gaining access to freestanding uh, other dimensions of reality, which are normally closed off to our senses. Uh, we're so focused on the alert problem-solving state of mind uh, that we're shut down to all the rest of reality. And maybe altering consciousness allows that hidden reality 
to be accessed by our consciousness, just like a, a TV channel that we that we hadn't tuned into before, that we tune into now. And then, a, so that's a, a secret doorway inside our minds that leads us uh, into contact with intelligences in other dimensions. And then a, a third possibility is that it's a hidden archive within our DNA. All of these possibilities, I, I think, are worthy of further thought. Uh, they're they're definitely worth pondering and exploring, and and possibly personally experiencing if, if that's what people are, well, are that's called the, for. That's the great yeah. thing about the psychedelics. It is possible to personally experience. One need not theorize about this from an armchair. Uh, again, we need to do so with caution and with respect. Above oh, all, yeah. we must respect these visionary plants. This is, this is the right state of mind uh, in which to embark upon a, a journey. But with all that taken into account, we can have the experience. And, and having had that experience, it's astonishing how many people's lives are transformed by it, not only their view of reality, but also their personal lives. And, and I'm sure you've heard the saying, and it's true, that ayahuasca is equivalent to 20 years of psychotherapy in one night. <laughs> one very adventurous night. Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it, it does take right now anyway, um, for the most part, traveling down to South America, or there's a couple religions in North America, Santo Daime, mm -hmm. where they're now legally allowed to do ayahuasca ceremonies, but it's still exceptionally difficult uh, to to get access to the stuff. And I, I think that's kind of sad, but I also see that it's moving in the right direction. Well, it's part of the war on consciousness in our society, and luckily enough, the, the youth of our society, the, the, the young people are fighting back uh, against this. And, and, and it's great to see, you know, America as a nation has been effectively the dark heart of the war on drugs for the last 50 years. Blame it all on Richard Nixon, you know, uh, <laughs> and has been enforcing and, and stuffing this absurd war down the throats of other countries and, and causing chaos and misery all around the world. But it's the American people who are rolling that back state by state. So now the American people have just stood up in Colorado, they've stood up in Washington state, they've stood up in Oregon, they've stood up in Alaska, and they've put one finger up to central government, and they've said, <laughs> we like to smoke marijuana, and we're going to make it legal. And they've made it legal. And this is an amazing development. It's a really crucial development for the, for the future, that we are taking back control. We are taking back territory that has been wrongfully stolen from us by the state agencies. And this is something I think could only happen in America, a, a country where there is this strong ethic of individual freedom and where state rights exist. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, Yorkshire in Britain legalizing cannabis without London's agreement. <laughs> but here in America, you know, you can do that. And it's, it's what it's showing is that the emperor of the war on drugs wears no clothes. The, the whole result in Colorado has been an incredibly positive one and will continue to be so. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by all of this. The war on consciousness, the fight back has begun. It, it has indeed. And, and on that note, I'd like to ask you the final question mm -hmm. of our interview and one that I've asked all 250-something guests on the show. And I, I have no idea what you're going to say, which is kind of fun. Uh, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, I want to be better at everything I do in life, what are the three most important things I need to know? Love, beauty, and truth. Awesome. Very succinct. Love it. Graham, where can people find your book? 
I'm sure a lot of listeners will want to read it. It's called Magicians of the Gods. Uh, it was published in the U.S. on the 10th of November, just a week or two ago, and it, and and because we and and it was published in the U.K. on the 10th of September. You can get all information about it on my website www.grahamhancock.com. Uh, there's a, a whole book section there, and there's everything you need to know about Magicians of the Gods and, and links to go get it on Amazon and places like that. Excellent. Thanks for being a guest on Bulletproof Radio. This was great fun, and uh, keep doing the good work you're doing. And you. keep keep rattling those sabers and questioning theories that have big holes in them, because it's fun. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. I'm glad we managed to hook up and to get this done. If you enjoyed today's show with Graham Hancock, uh, do yourself a favor and look at those three things he talked about, uh, about love and, and truth and beauty, and see what you can do to have more of that in your life. And if someone tells you something, and there is a direct piece of knowledge that contradicts that, it doesn't mean that what the person told you is untrue or disproved. It means that it might be a useful model, but it means that there's more to it, and you can dig in and look at that. So just go out and do that, and that'll do something really, really cool for the people around you. And while you're at it, if part of the show is really interesting, look it up and come to the transcripts. You can search every word we just said is now t will be typed up for you by the time you see me saying this. And you can click on it and we'll give you just that section of the YouTube video and you can share just that part of the conversation with anyone you'd like. So this is a great way to get that knowledge out there. Just head on over to bulletproof.com slash YouTube and it'll give you everything you need in order to get connected to the YouTube channel or you can get the transcripts on the main blog, bulletproofexact.com. Thanks for listening. I had so much fun in this interview and it was really cool that, uh, that Graham made time for this. Have an awesome day. It's nearly Valentine's Day, that day that fierce battles break out in offices nationwide. Who ordered the best flowers? Who got the best flowers? Well, that would be you if you told your significant other to get you flowers from books.com. Books is really cool because, believe it or not, flowers do make people happy. The way they smell when they smell like fresh flowers and the way they look with their colors and things like that do bring a bit of nature outside. So I'm actually a fan of flowers. I buy flowers for Dr. Lana on a regular basis. And the fact of the matter is, when I travel, I like to do it even more. The problem is that it's a pain in the ass to get flowers. It's an experience that I don't really enjoy. In fact, Dr. Lana, if you're listening, I actually have my executive assistant help me buy flowers because it's so damn complex. Which is why I was pretty happy when Books reached out and said, hey Dave, check this stuff out because these are flowers that are really, really good looking. They're grown at eco-friendly farms, seriously on the side of a volcano in Quito, Ecuador. And I like volcanoes because our coffee is grown in Guatemala on the side of a volcano. And the blooms are larger and the colors are more vibrant than you're used to getting at your local florist. It's better soil, more sun, it's grown at 10,000 feet. And with flowers like this on your love's desk, it's game over. Uh, so what if another guy's flowers have a silly plush teddy bear hugging the vase? That bear will cower in a dark desk drawer once it sees the book's flowers you sent. So what's all this gorgeousness going to set you back, you might ask? Well, not much. And that's the other thing I like about this because regular flowers equals happy wife. And it starts at a mere 40 bucks. And 40 bucks with these guys means 40 bucks. 
as in not $68, which is what typically happens when you buy $40 flowers and they add a bunch of weird fees on there. In fact, it's so annoying that I try to run screaming from it. I could actually order these flowers all by myself. There's no upcharges, no extra fees. Even the delivery is free when you register with the books. And if you listen to Bulletproof Radio, which you're doing because you're hearing me right now, you get 20% off the bouquet of your choice. That'll save you at least eight bucks right now. Just go to books.com and enter the promo code BULLET. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com, promo code BULLET. Books.com, promo code BULLET. It's just bouquet, get rid of the A and add an S, books.com. It's actually really cool. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.